Right. Well, guys, again, I want to say thank you for being here. You, if you do not know where we're at in our teaching series, no problem. Welcome. We are in the, what we call the greatest. Um, it, when I say that, I'm thinking now all of a sudden it sounds like I'm saying I'm delivering the greatest to you. I'm not saying that. Maybe I should rename that. I'm just now rethinking that moment. Anyhow, this is a series we're calling the greatest because it's out of the scriptures. It says the greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. And so this is really a series about love and what it means. Now, to, to get us started here, I just want to tell you a story. A couple weeks ago, I was in a local restaurant and I was having breakfast with Adam Nagel, the director of the factory ministries. Now we do this mostly just as in a cover to have breakfast together, but often we talk about what's going on at the factory and the Together Initiative and the church and all that. So here's the deal. I walk into the restaurant with Adam. We walk up to the counter. I'm not going to name the restaurant. Walk up to the counter, order our food, and we're done ordering. And I was taking care of the bill this, this day, so I, they said, can I have a name for the order? To which I'm like, sure. Tim. Not a hard name, right? Pretty simple, straightforward. All right. So we go, we pay, we sit down. Now, we sit across the way from the cashier. And um, about five, seven minutes later, our food was done. You know, your clock's kind of ticking when the food will be delivered because they bring the food out to you then when it's done. Um, and so here walks a, uh, an employee, not really a server, but an employee across the dining room area. And we are, happen to be the farthest possible point in the restaurant away from the cash register where she was coming from. Um, <laughs> she's looking around, and she's just going to yell your name when the food is ready. So she's looking around, she's holding these plates, and here's what she's like. Timmy? <laughs> Timmy? And I'm sitting there with my back to this moment, like, I, you gotta be kidding me. Like, <laughs> is there a six-year-old who just ordered a meal is what I'm wondering? Like, that's about the last time that happened to me, and Adam is having a great time. He's like, I think that's our order. I'm like, I know it's our order, and I'm ignoring it. I don't even want food this morning, man. I'm not going to raise my hand. What middle-aged man goes by Timmy in a restaurant? You know what I'm saying? Oh, my gosh. Two weeks later, we decide, well, let me go back here for breakfast. This past week, this past Wednesday, went to the same place for breakfast with Adam. Walk into the place. What do you think goes through my mind? I'm like, well, uh, and then Adam reminds me about that. He's like, hey, remember last time? I'm like, I remember last time, Adam. Good grief. It left a scar in me, all right? Ironically, this week I'm getting ready for a message in which one of the primary points that we're going to see in the scriptures this morning is this idea that love keeps no record of wrongs. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I walk in there, I'm like, I can't do that. Come on now, I can't do that. I get reminded of the physical place, and the first thing that comes back to my mind is the story of this wrong of two weeks ago. Now, I get it, it was silly and immaterial, but come on. You ever feel, I mean, seriously, can, can we engage the scriptures with that level of honesty? Do you ever feel like what God is asking you to do and me to do is just not actually possible? Like, do you really want me to walk into this restaurant and not have a record of what happened last time? <laughs> Come on. Do I really expect you to walk into your relationships with the people who have left you and hurt you and have no record of that wrong? Come on. Do I expect you to look at that organization the same way after what they did to you? I mean, for real? Come on, you even walk through their doors and you feel the memories come flooding back. But love keeps no record of wrongs. Are you serious? 
Sometimes these calls for love are so ridiculously high that it's like I don't even engage them because I know I can't do them. So then I just live in my version of love that I think is good enough and reasonable enough, and if you agree with me that I'm good enough, I'll agree with you that you're good enough, and then I don't actually have to live up to those ridiculously high standards of what God actually calls love to be. I really don't know how I, honestly, really, I don't know how I walk into that restaurant and don't recall what happened, as silly as that was a couple weeks ago. And maybe for you, you might feel the same way. And here's my argument in this series, is that you and I are, especially right now in this polarized world, we are constantly walking into relationships where we feel this tension, where we see people and we're reminded of what was. And the hurt is quick to come and the memory comes quicker than we can stop it. Then we wonder, should I stop it? And we hear these things, love keeps no record of wrongs, and that, that hits us at this intersection, like, what does that even mean to do that? And in this series on love, I'm not going to say everything there is to say about love. That's impossible. But all that I'm hoping for is that the conversation around this topic, I hope that it can provide hope and healing in your relationships. I hope it can provide at least one step toward hope and healing so that what is polarizing around us maybe might not be quite so polarizing. So the gaps that can form might be shortened just a little bit. This morning, all that I want to talk about is going to be fairly brief this morning. I want to simply talk about basically four ways that love can keep me from hurting you. Four ways that love can keep me from hurting you. And I want to use the passage of Scripture we're in, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you're familiar with your Bible, this is what they call the love chapter. If you're not, this is still what they call the love chapter anyway. But this is a, a chapter that people will um, often use at a wedding, but it wasn't written for a 21st century wedding. It was written to people who were in a church who were trying to figure out how to live with each other and love each other. And so Paul writes this love chapter, not to a wedding, but to people like me and people like you. And it's very high and lofty. And I'm going to be very honest with the text as we engage it. And so if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the chair near you. You can grab that, take that home with you. We want to give that to you. But 1 Corinthians 13, uh, open up there if you don't mind. It's in the right two-thirds of your Bible. We're only looking at one verse. And you'll see very quickly four ways that love can keep me from hurting you. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're into verse 5 now. We did 4 last week. We're going 5 only this week. Here's what it says. Here's what Paul writes. He says, love, speaking of love, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. And it keeps, here's what we focus on right now, it keeps no record of wrongs, things that seem almost impossible to do. Let me just talk about these one at a time and then share some things at the end and we're going to share communion together this morning. Let's look at the first one here. It does not dishonor others. Again, let's get into the context. Paul is writing to the early church in Corinth and they were actually sharing a communion together. And in coming to the Lord's table, what was happening there in Corinth is that the people who had more money were talking down on and talking against those who didn't have as much money. There was a public dishonoring that was happening. And again, because Paul is writing to real people in real history, he's reminding them, and he wrote about this early in the letter, that we don't do that. Love doesn't dishonor in that way. It doesn't speak down to people in this way. 
I re was reminded of this when I came home from Barbados. My parents were missionaries. I came back to Peckley Valley High School for my high school years. Um, and I remember having to learn the culture of America as a 13-year-old. And I learned pretty quickly there are some things that you can do that will be dishonorable and some things that will be honorable, depending upon who you value. So if I wanted to sit at a different lunch table, and you understand you can get promotions to different lunch tables based on the social groups you're in, right? The hope will be at some point that you get promoted to or find your way into the people who can be cool enough, or at least that you value to be cool enough. And I realize that by wearing certain things, speaking in certain ways, laughing at certain things, those seem to be the formulas in which you get more honor and avoid dishonor. It was just calculated for me. I was what they call a third culture kid existing between Barbados here and America, somewhere in the middle, not quite finding a home in either one. And so for me, trying to learn those systems was somewhat natural, just the way I functioned and survived. And so I learned pretty quickly that there are... <laughs> things that you can do that will get you greater honor and will get you greater dishonor. What I think I did not realize then is that when you finally make it to a table in which you perceived there to be great honor, like you're finally with the cool kids, you've made it. You've made it to the people who have the stuff that you thought would be always cool to have. You made it to the people who have good reputations, at least so you think. You realize that part of the way that they get that and garner that is also by dishonoring or stepping on those who don't. In order to make themselves feel better, they have to step down on and push against people who are not at their table. It helps remind them of the awesomeness of their group. It's exactly how power is found and located in our public square. When's the last time you see a campaign where it's simply been about, let me honor the candidate on the other side. Let me tell you all the good reasons why they might be a good person to vote for, but here's why I think I'm a good one to vote for too. No, 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 no. We dishonor the other side so that we can gain all the power ourselves. We do that not just in politics, but not, not just in the high school cafeteria, but also in our hearts against people who are not like us. That can be the draw. And Paul is saying, love doesn't speak down on and grab power to and dishonor other people at all. It doesn't dishonor people. It doesn't speak against the groups that are not a part of who you are and who I am. It simply doesn't do that. Easier said than done. He goes on, puts it this way. He said, love doesn't dishonor others. It's also not self-seeking. Again, we're moving fairly quickly here this morning. This is what I love about this part. I love, and I don't know if you love this too, I love to see people, I love to experience the kindness of other people. So when I'm in, I mentioned this last week, when I'm in someone's office and they hand me a book, when I walk by one of you and you ask me, how are you doing? And later on, send me a text or an email to follow up to see what's going on. When you take time, and when I take time to step into your life, really, to feel truly engaged, I feel like what a gift your kindness is to me. You've given me a part of your heart in which you actually are caring for me. An incredible gift. And I know that love isn't self-seeking, that you're not seeking your own self. It's, it's an incredible gift, and you may have experienced that too. Now, I just want to speak to one thing in our culture right now that I think has to do with this space where love is not self-seeking. One of the things that I see, and maybe you see too, is a, um, a push for our, for our current generation and the next generation and all of our generations, I suppose, um, to value really finding oneself, to, to, to be free to make whatever decisions need to be made so that you can find yourself. Now, I'm all for 
Enneagram studies, personality studies, strengths inventories, I'm all for understanding yourself. But I also see a, a tendency to say one of the most important values of our culture can be to find yourself. When you find who you truly are, that's when you can be the freest to be who you are, and you can find your max fulfillment in how you're wired and shaped. Just keep finding yourself. When you find yourself, ah, then you will be able to grab life by the tail once you have found out who you are. What that might mean is you might need to leave the job, you might need to leave the relationship, you might need to leave this or that, you might need to change something significant, but it's for a good purpose. It's for you to find yourself, because that's a North Star. Find out who you are, because that will give you meaning in life. And here's what I want to suggest is that love challenges the idea that finding yourself is the highest aim. Love, when it says love is not self-seeking, it says rather than saying finding yourself is the highest aim, love says, what if I find you is the highest aim? Here, here's what I've had the privilege and challenge of seeing. I've been, have, I've been able to talk to dozens and dozens of people in marriage relationships over the years, and maybe you have too who are struggling between what seems to be two irreconcilable issues. Number one, the husband does not want more children. The wife does want more children. You can't really have a half a kid, right? Like, you're either going to or you're not. Like, there's not, there's no middle ground there. You know, it's just the way that is. If the highest aim is to find the expression of yourself, if the husband doesn't want this because he wants to be able to find himself, like this is about, that many, there, there, then what happens is we have a relationship that is headed toward irreconcilable differences. But what if the husband were to say, you know what, my biggest aim is I'm going to outdo you with honor. Like Paul writes in the New Testament, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, my goal in Romans is I'm going to outdo you with honor. Rather than having myself as the primary North Star, I'm going to say, what about you? Oh, you want another kid? Tell me more about that. Help me understand that. And she's saying, no, no, you don't want another kid? Let me, let me understand more about that. Maybe we can move that direction. Now we start kind of fighting with each other about who's going to give each other the best you know, path forward. Not just with kids. I've seen, I've seen marriages who struggle with this issue in, in what to do with church. One husband, the one spouse says, I, I can't go here anymore. Another says, I love to go here. And, I, and you, like, you can't half go and half not go. Like, you, you, marriages get pulled in different directions all the time. What I'm saying is love, love's highest aim isn't finding myself, but submitting myself to somebody else. That's the higher aim, is it's a call to submission. It isn't self-seeking. And so there is a subtle message that can come into our culture that says the highest aim, friends, is just to find yourself. Find yourself and you'll be set to go. You grab life by the tail. And love says, I'm going to challenge that. Understand yourself, yes. Know your assessments, your personalities, your strengths. Um, let's do that all day long. Why? So that you know how best to use your strength to serve and love the people around you, not so that you can grab life by the tail. All right, and then he goes on. Love is not self-seeking. Then he goes on. It's not easily angered, he says. Now, this is kind of a backwards way of saying it's patient. It's not easily angered, meaning these are people who, love, when love gets a hold of my heart and yours, I don't fly off the handle at you. Now, I want to speak, I just want to encourage a specific group here this morning. Um, and by, by, let me do it this way. 
How many of you in the room this morning, this will be a, a show of hands, um, have kids who are um, at or graduating from high school area or have done, finished high school, your empty nesters or whatever? Can we do a raise of hands? Can we have an active participation in that? All right. Now, let me, uh, we're going to do this again for the fun of it, okay? Because here's what's happening. <clears throat> You guys ever hear of the term alligator arms? Patrick Lincioni talks about that. This has nothing to do with the message. You know, that, 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 was, that was like cheering for the Florida Gators over here, and that's not what I mean. But that was solid, Megan, I like that. Patrick Lincioni talks about alligator arms being a way that people um, affirm something without fully getting into it. They're like, I'm open to the idea. That's, I'm open to the idea, but if it doesn't go right, it's gonna be your fault, and I will tell you I wasn't into the idea. I'm alligator arming your idea, all right? So that's a way to like pseudo commit to change, but not really, because you're not really in, it wasn't your idea anyway, and you didn't get to say enough, so you, you're halfway in, it's very dangerous. So, I'm, so here's, that's, you guys alligator arm up for me, like I have a kid, like yeah. For the sake of those who do not have children, but who may yet be parents, let's do this one more time, with a full commitment all the way, all the way up. If you're an empty nester, or if you have kids who are at or near graduating, give me something there so people can see you. All right, that's awesome. Thank you for the participation for those who were there. All right, thank you. Now, for those who raised your hands, I'm going to ask you in a minute if you can affirm this or not, because I want to encourage our younger parents. Younger parents, sometimes you're in a season of life where you're raising young kids, and it feels like that phase never goes away. Um, it's just going to keep going on and on and on. And it can be very maddening sometimes. It can be very difficult. Um, you can run into seasons where you're like, I don't think... Like if this, when you're living in it, it's like this is all there is and this is all the future reality maybe for years to come with no clear end to it. I have a personal memory on a wall going down the steps, going down to my office and my home that is not an honorable memory, but I'll share it with you anyway. There's a little indentation on the wall about the height of where someone, not naming any names, might, let's say in anger, hit the wall in frustration when things weren't going well in the parenting world. And I remember walking down the step just being like, oh, this is frustrating. And, and just like, like hitting the side of the wall with, my, with my, the side of my hand. That indentation is still there all the time. And I remember, I don't even remember the, the issue, but I remember feeling extremely upset as a parent. Like, ah, I can't get on top of this. I don't think it's ever going to end. I was angry. And now being on a little bit further down the road, I just want to encourage you, if you're in a parenting role or a future parenting role, to remember this, that love, love isn't easily angered. It doesn't mean that you may not, like I did, hit the wall, but it does mean that maybe there's a time to step back and say, I'm getting very angry. And I don't think I can love through this space. So rather than condemning yourself, just back it up and saying, this phase... This phase will pass. This phase will pass. You may not seem like it, but I just want to encourage you, young parents, this season will pass. Your children will grow and develop. Now, if you are a parent who is, has kids who raised your hands earlier, if you would affirm that, and this is now dangerous for me, by the way, if you would affirm that for these, for these, these next young generation, would you raise your hand, not arming it as well, and saying, yeah, I agree with that? I agree with that. I see that. I've been through that. This phase will pass. Thank you. Now, I don't know, but that looked like close to 100%. I'm going to go with 87% agreement on that one, which I will take. Young parents, I just want to encourage you. This season will pass as you go. Do not let love anger you too much. Okay. Finally, 
Love keeps no record of wrongs. And with this, we'll move forward. This is such a difficult idea. I'm going to take me back to the restaurant. What does that mean when I walk into my restaurant and I remember this? What does it mean when you walk into your relationship and you remember this? What, what Paul is saying here is this literally means love doesn't um, keep a record of it in the sense that it doesn't um, hold it against you and it doesn't keep a ledger of all the things that you've done wrong so that I have a reason to hate you. If I take this at face value, I'd have to say that Jesus didn't even follow this advice. There are times when Jesus would call the religious leaders out. He would call them out for what they did wrong. He spoke publicly about this multiple times. There's an issue called Corbin, for example, in which people were trying to essentially, I'll say, get a tax deduction. They were, they were not allowing their parents to stay in their homes or their daughty houses, their extended in-law quarters, because they, quote-unquote, dedicated it to the Lord. Well, the truth is they just wanted a bigger home for themselves, and they dedicated it to the Lord, but then they kept it from their family. Jesus saw the, the duplicity of the heart, and he said, this is wrong, all right? This is wrong. So he kept a record of what they did wrong, and yet I would say that everything Jesus did was loving, okay? Same thing with dealing with evil. Like, I would be, there would be no justice and no righteousness if there wasn't a record of evil and a future correction of that. And so when we say love keeps no record of wrongs, we do not blindly just say, oh, forget all of the pain that you've had. Just walk into the restaurant and you shouldn't remember that. You're in an abusive relationship. That's your fault because you just need to forget it every morning when you wake up. That is not what I'm saying and not what Paul's saying. What love keeps no record of wrongs means, I want, you to just, I want to encourage you to think about it in a, in a very normal relational way. If you've ever had a relationship with someone who is constantly reminding you of the ways that you fail, the things that you haven't done, who's bringing back up to you over and over and over again the things that are really not going well for you, this is what Paul's saying. That is not fundamentally loving. That the heart of relationships is if there's someone here and someone here and a bridge between here and here, what undergirds the relationship is grace and truth. And when truth is gone and grace is gone in a relationship, then what we have is a record of wrongs that ends up crumbling that bridge, which is why relationships fall apart. Because I lose grace and I've lost truth in that. And so I begin to keep a record of wrongs and it weighs too heavy on that bridge and now I'm reminded every time I see you that you've really screwed my life up and maybe I've screwed your life up. What do I do with that? Because there's sometimes that I should talk to you and sometimes you should talk to me. At a fly-by level, let me encourage you, to engage the peacemaker's material in this space. Here's what I mean. If you think about it this way, if I have a problem with you or you have a problem with me, how do I know when to talk to you or when to let it go? Does love keep a record of the wrong that I have between you and you and me? Here's what we learn from the peacemakers. I talk about this. If there's an issue that is dishonoring to God, that is hurting other people, or permanently standing in the way of your relationship with me, we should sit down and talk about it. We can't just sweep it under the rug and pretend it's going on. Is it dishonoring to God? Is it hurting other people? And is it permanently standing in the way of our relationship? If it is, we have an obligation as Christians to talk about it. If it's not, I can cover it with grace, and love will not keep a record of that wrong. My issue with this restaurant does not fit any of those categories. I need to get over myself, go enjoy it, and have a good time. 
If I go in there and someone personally maligns me loudly in the restaurant who also attends church here, we might need to have a conversation. Like, hey, if you want to malign me, do it in my office at least, All right? Let's get that taken care of that way, and then we can have another conversation. But there are certain things that do need to be talked about and those that don't. Is it dishonoring to God? Is it hurting other people? Is it permanently standing in the way of my relationship? If it's not, then Paul is just saying at a kind of a normal level of, of interacting, love doesn't keep a record of those wrongs. It's just not how that works. All right, with that being said, let me wrap it up this way. Let me just answer this question. Why in the world don't we just do this? Like, I don't think any of us, if I asked you, do you agree with what Paul's writing? Do you think this is a good idea? Okay, love, I mean, let's look at it again in the verse, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 13, 5. It doesn't dishonor others, not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. I don't think anyone's going to disagree with that. The question is, why don't we do that? Like, what, what's behind the reason why we don't always do that? Why is this so hard to do? Why is it hard to do what we know what we should do? And I begin to look at the verse the other way. Look at the verse again with me, and I want you to turn the verse to a positive way. Take out the knots for a minute. If I were to describe, and I'm going to ask you the question, what is this then describing? It. It dishonors others. It is self-seeking. It is easily angered, and it keeps a record of wrongs. If I were to describe that phrase, what would, how, what would you identify as the it? It dishonors. It is self-seeking. It is easily angered, and it, it keeps a record of wrongs. What is it in that situation? And some might say, well, that would be, that'd be anger. Well, that, that would be maybe pride. You know, that would be, I don't know what that would be. I would want to argue with you that that, I would say, is fear. That is fear. That fear, fear is, fear is an exhilarating, energizing force that draws you and I in. Fear allows us to control our world more than love does. Fear gives me control and takes you out of it. Fear makes me feel safer. Love makes me feel vulnerable. Doesn't that work all the time in our relationships? If, if we're dating and you break up with me, I'm now afraid of entering into another relationship because I might get hurt. And so fear keeps me safer. Love makes me vulnerable. I love the way Dan White puts it. He, he puts it this way. He says, many of us cuddle and coddle fear because it just makes more sense than the generous open posture of love. We believe love makes us vulnerable to harm while fear protects us. He goes on, he says, love compels us toward people. Fear creates a buffer. Love causes us to lean in and listen. And fear tells us we don't need to hear anymore. Fear offers something in return, a sense of control and safety, placing our wants, our needs, our anxieties at the center of importance. I don't know if you thought about fear that way. If I were to ask you, are you afraid? No, what am I afraid of? I'm not afraid of anything. Okay. Okay. Sure. Am I loving? I mean, enough. Loving to this degree? I'm not sure. Why? If I'm honest, it's because I'm afraid of what love demands of me. If love is going to force me to be more vulnerable with you, fear is going to send off alarm bells all the time in my head like, this isn't safe. I'm not ready for that kind of love. Not ready for that. And so I want to ask you two questions, and one is this. Am I afraid of love? Am I afraid to forgive the person who has so wronged me? 
Am I afraid of giving up the control I have of that relationship and the, the ground that I've marked? And the t- I am right, <laughs> they are wrong. And the fear of opening that up and considering that I might need to lean in and have a warm regard for that person. If love requires that, I don't know if I can do that. Am I afraid to love? Second question is this. Which of these four knots might I need to pay attention to right now? As we read through that verse a couple times, I want to encourage you to look at it again and ask, which one of these, love, does not dishonor others? Are you speaking down to anybody? Are you part of groups that are speaking down to other people in order to get power for yourself? It isn't self-seeking. Have you found yourself, if you're honest, making more self-seeking decisions recently than you really need to? It's not easily angered. How many walls, like me, have you pounded recently? And it keeps no record of wrongs. Which of these might you need to revisit? Now, let me say this, and then uh, we're going to transition here. I've offered this every time. We're grateful we have a number of you already doing this. But if you want more information about what we're doing weekly, we send out emails. I want to encourage you in a few minutes to write in your connection card, the greatest, and we'll give you more information weekly about this series, hopefully with some application points throughout the week. Last question, and then we'll move on. Uh, Why do this? All right, why do this? Why should we even bother engaging this topic? And I want to be careful any time I talk. um, I want to be careful as we talk about these things that I'm I'm not encouraging you just to be more moral, okay? I'm not encouraging you just to be better. Try harder. If only you were your ideal self, your life would be great. I'm not just encouraging that. I don't mind if we try, but I want you to try in light of the gospel, not in light of your effort. I want you to try in light of what God has already done with you through Christ, not just by pulling yourself up and saying, I'm going to get love right. Here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. He, He puts it this way. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He pictures God bringing the world together through Christ in healing our relationships. And he specifically speaks about it this way. Here's the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ And I underlined and bolded this next phrase, not counting people's sins against them. That is the same phrase that Paul used when he says, love keeps no record of wrongs. This is what God has done for you and what God has done for me through Christ. This is the definition or the precursor to this term of reconciliation. In order to be reconciled to somebody, somebody in the room has to be big enough to say, I am going to not count against you the things that I have been counting against you for a long time. I'm not going to do that. Why would I not do that? Not just because I'm trying hard, but because God has already done that for me and for you. And then here's where it gets even more convicting. He finishes this, puts it this way, and he has committed, he has committed to us 
the message of reconciliation. So that God looked at us and said, there was a wrong between me and you. I see it. <laughs> I'm not going to count it against you. That's the message now that I want you to take to your neighbors, to your classmates, to your teachers, to your bosses, to your family, to the people on the other side, because this is the ministry of reconciliation. Love keeps no record of wrongs. As hard as that is to swallow, this is what God has done through Christ's death on the cross, which is what, to me at least, makes taking communion even more personal. So when I take the, what we call the bread and the cup, and when I take that, and we're going to hand that out in a minute, but when I take that, listen, what I'm taking is the broken symbol of the broken body of Christ for me, the reconciling work of God through Christ for me. What I'm taking is a physical reminder that God didn't keep a record of my wrongs. That's amazing. And he's given to me the same message. Take this and eat this and drink this and don't keep a record of the wrongs. Be a messenger of reconciliation. And so what we're about to do, just to explain it to you if you haven't been here before, we're going to, in a minute, we're going to pass out um, little pieces of bread and pass out the, the cup as well to drink. It's a symbol of Christ's body on the cross where it was broken for us and his blood that was poured out for us that we might, by believing in Jesus Christ alone, experience salvation and reconciliation with God. That the distance between me and God will be brought down and eliminated through Christ's death for us. And so at Grace Point, we deeply believe that is the heart of true Christianity, is the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we share in communion regularly for that reason. This morning especially, in light of what we're talking about in our series on love, I pray that this moment that we can share together will be one where in your own hearts you can be opened up again to the idea. What does love look like for you? with the relationships that are closest to you? What step might you need to take for hope and healing around you so that our world doesn't become more polarized, but we, we are messengers of reconciliation one to the other. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us as we move into this moment, and then the ushers will come forward. If you um, would like to participate in communion with us, you don't need to be a member of our church. You can just, you're here, and we'd love to have you take it if you would like to do that. Um, we're going to hold the elements until all have been served, um, and then at the end, we will come up and, um, and lead you in taking that together. So if you pray with me, and we'll move forward. Father, I thank you for the time this morning uh, to gather around uh, your word and this idea of reconciliation and the hope of reconciliation. I, I pray that you would give us courage not to be afraid of love's demands to be more vulnerable. And I know that's a difficult position to be in. But we thank you that you did that for us. And so I pray that as we step forward, that we can, in love, follow in the footsteps of Christ, who died on the cross for us, that we might have life eternal. So I thank you for the chance to share in communion together. And I pray that you would renew our hearts in the taking of it, that in eating the bread and drinking the cup, our own hearts would be softened to what love tastes like and feels like. 
pray that you would move in our own hearts, not to be afraid of love's demands, but to move forward as messengers of reconciliation. So we pray this. Thank you for your kindness to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, if you are serving, we can come on up and serve that now.